0: Okay, Welcome everybody uh, for the weekend. Um, I know some of you are new and some of you are experienced uh, doing these kinds of retreats. Over this weekend we're going to be exploring, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but in a sense the title of this weekend is slightly ambiguous and it's deliberately so. Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. It can be, mean at what's at the very centre of what we might wish to call wisdom or understanding. And it also means what is the heart of this, in the sense of what is the quality of love and kindness and that we bring to this practice. And that's what we'll be exploring. I'll explore that in much, much more detail tomorrow evening. This evening's talk will be fairly short. I think probably most of you have had fairly long journeys and difficulties getting here. Um, and so I'll make the, the, short, the talk fairly short this evening. And then we'll do a, a short meditation and then pick up the whole day tomorrow and, and start in the morning properly. But I just want to say a few words this evening, which I think are important words about the nature of what we're doing on retreats such as this. No matter whether you've been on many, many retreats or no matter whether it's new to you, I think these are words are worth re-examining every time you come on retreat is why do you do it? What are you searching for? This is something you have to look at, something you really have to examine, your intention behind coming on a retreat. The Buddha's way, his teaching, is a teaching to help us to deal with some of the most difficult issues in our lives, Um, often translated as suffering. Um, The word in Pali is dukkha, which means many, many, many more things than just suffering. It means every bit of dissatisfaction in your life, Um, it's as big as that. (laughs) So you're dealing with every bit of dissatisfaction. And the Buddha's path is a way to deal with that dissatisfaction, helping us to come to grips with it. So, in many ways, this is what is the central message of his teaching. He says, I only teach two things suffering and its overcoming. That is all I teach. Uh, Nothing else, nothing about God or any other deity, or anything of that sort, anything outside of what we can actually work with and deal with. So the teaching is central in that it deals with our very deep problems, the problems that we all face in terms of daily life. So this is what we're really, really beginning to examine and look at. But to come to the question, why, why do we meditate? what is the purpose what is the purpose of doing something such as meditation well a it's to come to grips with to look at in detail the workings of our own mind and see how it's our own minds and see how our minds are implicated so deeply in the distress that we cause ourselves that the, the mind isn't sudden somehow a passive onlooker that is just receiving all the problems of the world, that is deeply, deeply implicated in the problems that we experience, in the suffering that we generate for ourselves, in the distress that we often feel in life. It is our minds that are implicated in this. And so traditionally, Buddhist practice is usually divided into two forms. The one form which is generating a degree of serenity, a degree of composure, calmness, relaxation and concentration. That is the first step usually on the Buddhist path and the path of meditation, even if you don't want to call it Buddhist, the path of meditation is to generate some quietness. Even if you've only you know, basically tried to meditate for a short period of time, you'll suddenly come to a, a, an amazing realization that the mind is very unquiet. It's leaping around. The Tibetans have a lovely phrase for it. They call it the monkey mind. It's swinging from tree to tree, extremely quickly, hanging on from branch and tossing itself onto another branch. This is what our minds are doing. So even when we try to practice just a little bit of calmness, a little bit of concentration, we begin to see this rapidly fluctuating nature of the mind the way it will pick up on an anxiety or a worry or a fear or a hope or a joy or remembering the past, projecting ourselves into the future. This is what our minds are doing. They're fragmented, they're distorted, they're often extremely scattered. Um, There's something in the modern world which uh, from a Buddhist perspective is not so good. It's called multitasking. (laughs) Multitasking. Often we're required to do this, and there's a consequence of it. We never focus on anything properly. Concentration meditation, or the cultivation of concentration, as it should really be called, is the antithesis of this. It's the antidote to all of this. It's this beginning to bring the mind back into some kind of focus and into some kind of serenity, to start to pay attention. Now, if you really, really want to do something radical in this world today, pay attention, because everybody else is scattered. Everybody else is distracted. Everybody else is extremely busy. This is the most radical statement you can almost make in the modern world, is to stop and pay attention. Now, this first step in meditation practice is moving into concentration and then eventually opening it up to insight and to other practices as well, which I'll come on to in a second is this first step into starting to slow ourselves down and start to direct our attention in a particular way, in a particularly non-judgmental way, so that we begin to observe the qualities of what is going on in our minds. And one of the things that you will discover, even if you just try to do that for five or ten minutes, We'll be doing it a lot longer, but uh, even if you try to do that just at home for five or ten minutes, as you'll find that the mind almost refuses to stay on one thing. I, probably, I should imagine many of you have tried to do this. You've tried to pull the mind onto some object, often, as we will do for much of the weekend here, using the breath in particular ways, because the breathing is with us all the time. It's the object which is most accessible to us all the time. We can do it no matter where we are. That we can keep bringing our attention back to us. Now in the initial stages you will find that the attention doesn't want to stay there. Even in middle stages it doesn't want to stay there of meditation practice. It will go off. Now that is not a problem and I will say this to you again whether you're experienced practitioners or whether you're very new to this. When... We start to explore some of the methods tomorrow, some of the, well, I hesitate to use the word, but techniques that can be used in meditation. And you find your mind doing this. This is not a problem. That's what minds do. They wander off. Now this is constantly reminding ourselves to bring us back to an object, to retain focus. And in in concentration meditation, or the cultivation of concentration, we do this over and over and over and over again, until that distraction starts to lessen, that we get less caught up. Once we have a degree of concentration, then we move into other forms of meditation practice, particularly ones which are so important on the Buddha's path, on the Buddha's way, Ways of developing insight. Now what we're primarily doing over this weekend is insight practice. We will do a little concentration practice as well. But primarily what we're engaged in is doing insight practice. Now what do we mean by this term insight? It's getting to see things the way they are. Not how we would like them to be. You know, Most of us when we sit down would like to be perhaps somebody else, kinder, of about more generous, calmer. Often we're not. So this is initially the acceptance of where we are. So we're not judging ourselves. We're not criticizing ourselves. Uh, We're not, as one Sri Lankan friend of mine once said to me, he said to me, when Western people get meditation, they make their lives even more miserable. (laughs) because it just becomes another form of criticising yourself. My mind is unsteady, it's unquiet, it's doing this, I'm, you know, and all this is arising, and you know, uh, I'm a terrible meditator, and <laughs> all these things happen. And so it becomes another way of you know, self-lacerating ourselves, uh, of engaging self-criticism. Now, that doesn't have to be the case. This is beginning in the initial stages to see what is going on. And if you want, you've know, you probably all heard this word, if you want a mantra for the weekend it's what's going on (laughs) because often we don't know we don't have much of a clue about what is going on in our own minds in terms of our intentions of what is there both good and both what is unpleasant and unwholesome in our minds so it's learning to familiarize ourselves with the landscape of our minds. Eventually, and perhaps this becomes part of the question I almost asked rhetorically at the beginning, why do we do this? We do this to gain some kind of insight into the workings of our mind and actually how the workings of our mind do not remain in our minds. They spread out into the world. We project them onto the world. We project qualities that we perceive in our minds onto others and on to what is going on around us. So it doesn't remain in our minds. In the classic opening of the most translated Buddhist Pali text, the Dhammapada, I mean, it usually can be translated as something like, mind is the forerunner of all things. The mind is out there already. It's already making judgments. It's already criticizing, liking and disliking, and doing all the things that we do. And so we get into a kind of circularity of experience where actually all we experience, really, in terms of the world and its workings and those around us is what is in our own minds. Do we see clearly? Do we pay attention wisely? Now these are all words that are used in the classical Buddhist texts to actually pay attention wisely to that which is worthy of attention to direct our minds into particular wholesome ways of being rather than unwholesome ways of being. Now the groundwork for all of that work starts with something I know that was mentioned in the manager's talk tonight, which is the precepts. The precepts are the foundation. This is what in in Buddhist terms is known as sila. Sila is the moral, ethical foundations of our behavior. And in fact... In the classical texts, both from the Buddha's time and all of the subsequent development over the history of Buddhism, this has always been seen as the ground for any meditation practice. And In fact, meditation practice only makes sense when it's rooted in a ground of questioning our own moral and ethical behavior in this world. And the ways that they're generally formulated... In fact, I was having a talk with uh, Gavin, who gave you the the talk this evening, just before he came in here and said I just wanted to check to see how they're translated. Because they're often translated extremely basically. Um, Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't engage in sexual misconduct. um, Don't engage in telling lies. And for heaven's sake, don't take intoxicants. Now, this is all very simplistic. (laughs) because actually the texts don't say that the texts themselves and i'll only give you a few of them just to give you a flavor but i think they mean something much more and they're deliberately in a sense vague because they become ways of beginning to start to open up questions about our own ethical moral lives both here and, obviously, in the ordinary world. And I think there are good ways of beginning to look, You know, whether one wants to call oneself a Buddhist or not, at just the ways that we behave in ordinary life. The opening one, the opening precept, which is usually translated, I say, as in popular works on Buddhism as Don't Kill, actually goes something like this in the full formulation from the Pali, if you translate it, which is, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. So, it's actually about reverence for life. It's about how we do harm. Now, perhaps m- most of us, if not all of us here, wouldn't deliberately go out and kill something. You know, so, perhaps that's not an issue, but we do an awful lot of harm in our lives. Sometimes, you know, deliberately, sometimes inadvertently. So, this precept. I undertake a rule of training. Notice it's not, thou shalt not harm living beings. It's a rule of training. In other words, it's something to help to guide you through ordinary life. These are not, I don't know, what I would call prescriptions from on high that have been laid down on us. They're just things to help us, to guide us with our life, which is why they are precepts, which is why they are tools for opening up ethical and moral questions. That undertaking a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings opens up a whole arena in our lives of the way or the examination of the ways in which we might do harm. And that will possibly vary from individual to individual because all of our relationships with others and with the world somehow differ. They're not all identical. So it means looking individually at the ways that we Do harm. The second of the precepts, I undertake, perhaps I will do them all because I can run through them very quickly. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking that which is not offered. It doesn't say, don't steal. It's saying, taking what is not offered. Now, it obviously implies don't steal, but it's not as simple as that because we take all sorts of things which are not offered to us. Ideas and thoughts, the use of a telephone, the odd paper clip here, the odd pencil there. If you've ever worked in places where these things are just taken for granted, uh, that they're taken. Um, When I used to work in universities, and, and particularly when I used to work in Bristol University, one of the big things we had was plagiarism. People taking other people's ideas and writing them down as if they are their own in a way it's stealing but it's not quite as you know it's not quite the same as going in and shoplifting or something like that it's a very different thing so it's again it's looking at all the ways that we appropriate for ourselves that which is not offered freely to us and the third precept, well it actually says the way it's translated often says a lot about the ways that we live our lives in the West in particular sexual obsessions. As translated translators don't commit sexual misconduct. Well yes, that's in it, but the Pali also has I undertake a rule of training to re- refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. So it's actually to do with misusing the senses. Now obviously sexuality is part of sensuality as well. But sensuality, what is the relation with our senses? Do we overindulge them? Do we listen to too much music? Do we watch too much cinema? How do we overindulge our senses? Eating too much, drinking too much, all of these things. Then there is, I undertake the rule of training uh, to refrain from false speech. Now this actually can be even extended to harsh speech, as well, divisive speech, and idle chatter. Now, just think of those as a line. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harsh, harsh speech, false speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter. Is there much left to be said <laughs> <laughs> in this instance? Now, joking aside, what again? Obviously, it's doing, um, and that precept, as I say, can be extended in this way, is to actually look at the whole realm of our speech acts the way that we're doing. Idle chatter is a very good one, because it, like most of these things, it depends on the intention behind it. If my intention is just to while away some time gossiping, then perhaps it's not so wholesome. However, my, if my t- intention, if somebody comes to see me, and I might ask them about the journey, and perhaps even what they watched on television last night, might be put them at their ease, then the intention is quite, quite different. So it's looking at the intention behind your actions. The final one, which always is very problematic in the Western world, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking (coughs) substances which cloud the mind. That's what it actually says, substances which cloud the mind. Now if the purpose of, what is the purpose of meditation, is to actually develop a clear mind, develop some clarity about both what you're doing and your intentions and the nature of your own mind, then in a sense, that final one, if you're deliberately taking substances which cloud the mind, then it's going completely in the opposite direction to the thrust of practice in terms of trying to develop clarity and being able to see the way things are. So that's the reason for the last one. It's not simply prudery, I might add. um, Buddhist prudishness about people drinking. It's actually because it's directly opposed to the task. Now, from a Buddhist perspective, why do you meditate? Why do you meditate? Well, it's to meditate to understand the workings of the mind and how how we produce, both for ourselves and others, Pain, suffering, anxiety, distress, fear, and dissatisfaction. That's why you meditate. Now, if you've got any of that list, and I could, add, I could go on for probably about half an hour adding to that list, if you've got any of that, that's probably a good reason to try and you know, calm the mind and see what's going on. Even if it's simple, simple dissatisfaction, the idea that life is not giving me what I want, the idea that somehow it's unfair... I was always curious about that one. Whoever said it was going to be fair? (laughs) Where where was it in the contract? There is no fairness necessarily to life. So where does the idea of fairness come? It comes from the nature of our own minds. However, this dissatisfaction is really like the warp and woof of the background of a lot of our lives. Even when we get what we want... We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily comfortable and at ease with it. We're not happy. We're not content. Even when we're getting the thing we might have strived really hard to get, thinking that it's going to make us happy. Now the Buddha himself in one of the ancient texts uses a very striking example to show the mistakenness, our unwise attention, and often trying to find happiness in the very thing that can't produce it. However, we don't quite get it and continue to pursue it. Materiality is often like that in the Western world. We pursue it because we don't know any other ways, often, of producing it. We think that the contentment, the happiness, the relaxation is going to be produced by something external. The revolution in this, the revolution in the the meditative way of beginning to look at things is to see that those things that perhaps you really want... And only you can answer that whether you really want those things like peace, contentment, happiness, relaxation in life. If you really want those, that you could, the revolution is in seeing that they don't come from outside. That they're actually generated from within. That no matter how much we search for it externally, we will not get those things. And the striking image that the Buddha offers is one of a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop. And the butcher eventually throws the dog a bone, but it's got no flesh on it whatsoever. It's just smeared, as the Buddha says, with blood. And the dog chews it and chews it and chews it and chews it and, chews it and gets not one ounce of nutrition from it. In a way, this is a striking image because it shows you a lot of what the human condition is. In a sense, we are like the dog chewing over again, over and over and over and over again, things that will not produce for us sustenance, any real nutrition, give us anything. Materiality is often like that, and I'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow night. So ultimately the path of meditation, this path that we're engaging in this weekend, looking at practices which awaken the heart and which awaken the understanding, what we might call wisdom. These practices are aimed at really getting us to examine what we really value, what we really care about. In a way, perhaps it's almost going through to death and being able to look at life and say, what did I really care about? Did I really love wisely in this world? Did I really place my attention wisely in this world? Or did I simply fritter it away? Did I simply dissipate all of the opportunities to create calmness and peacefulness, not just for myself, but for others as well, who perhaps came into contact with me? Was my loving, as I say, wise in this world so it opens up the whole question of value and meaning this path of meditation this path of tranquility and insight and ultimately of course a path of kindness and this is a really really important dimension and one I'll be stressing both in the instructions tomorrow morning and throughout the day that this heart of wisdom, this heart of understanding is actually kindness is actually compassion starting with yourself in the ways that you examine and come into relationship with your own minds developing insight into the workings starting to understand some really fundamental things about the nature of the way things are that they are impermanent, for example. And I'll be stressing that one a lot, that things are impermanent, yet we act as if they are permanent, including ourselves. We act as if they're certain. You know, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody, you'll know that nothing is certain. You know, um, everything changes. Everything changes. This is such a fundamental aspect of the teaching and what we're trying to discover, and you discover it immediately, you begin to look into your own minds. Because when you look at your mind and the thought processes, you'll see simply a constant stream of arisings and passings away. However, in the constant stream of arising and passing away of thoughts, images, concepts, worries, anxieties, all the stuff I'm sure you're all familiar with that arises and passes away, we suddenly, in the middle of it, interject or posit something that's very personal, that these thoughts are mine. This is who I am. I am what I think. However, the movement or the process of meditation begins to reveal to you, actually, that we take ourselves far too seriously. And we take the thoughts far too seriously. We take all of these processes of this arising and passing way of thought and image and feeling and perception and everything else far too seriously. In fact, there's nothing personal in it at all. Yeah. Yet there we are, getting anxious and getting fearful... Because the thought of fear. There is the thought of fear, therefore I must be fearful. So it's beginning to see, actually, that there isn't this self in all of our thought processes. And in doing that, we lessen our relationship with them. We begin to insert some ease, some relaxation, even when the thought processes are still going on. Because I'm no longer attached to them, and am holding on to them. In the old days when you used to have kind of fly papers that used to catch flies, you know, they were sticky papers, so they still have them, they used to have them. A fly would come in it would go and stick on the, on the pad, on, on the piece of paper. Now they have these sort of fly zappers, don't they, instead. But here in this image is the idea of the fly gets stuck. It's like the thought, it comes into the mind and it gets stuck. And we circle around it again and again and again, holding on to it. This is the stuff of when you wake up in the middle of the night with thoughts running around your brain. When you're trying to solve the problem of why you feel like this or why you feel like that and you dig yourself into a bigger hole and not be able to get out of it. So a lot of why we meditate, this question I asked right at the beginning, is to come into the correct relationship with our thought process, to begin to understand how they operate, what's going on. And in doing so, learn to develop gentleness and kindness and compassion to ourselves these things have to start at home the first place they have to start is with ourselves if I don't feel any real feelings of kindness towards myself and in fact you often see this in English in England in particular I'm only telling you what I tell myself in other words I'm only beating you up because I beat myself up (laughs) because we don't have that kind relationship with ourselves we can do that sort of thing we lay stuff on others we lacerate them we metaphorically beat them up as well because we do it to ourselves if there is no kindness there in our relationship to our own thoughts and our own processes it's very difficult to generate it for others it's equally difficult to generate compassion for others if we don't have compassion for our own foibles, our, our own unwholesome behavior, our own ways of being in this world which you know, don't match up to our ideals. And when I see somebody else doing it not matching up to their ideals, I become extremely critical of them rather than compassionate for them. So, to try and wind this up, because I said it was going to be a short talk this evening, searching, seeking for the heart of wisdom means developing two faculties the wisdom faculty which is beginning to have insight into what is actually going on beginning to see it to have a heart in it well the central feature of it of course is this beginning to develop as i say penetrating understanding of the what is happening the way things actually are that they are impermanent as opposed to permanent they are changing there is nothing certain but it's also to bring the heart into the practice. This is a heartfelt practice. Um, there's a particular Zen saying that without compassion, the meditator is merely a block of stone. That's all. Now, that is not the purpose of the process of engaging in meditation and its meaning within our lives. The meaning is to be found in the compassion which is generated through the process of beginning to understand. So when you begin to understand your own problems and your own processes and the ways that you function and the way the world actually functions, then you begin to have feelings for others as well. Very deep feelings for others, connectedness to them as opposed to being split off from them and critical. So seeking or searching for the heart of the wisdom entails both of those aspects. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have a particular image. It says, for the bird to fly, it must have two wings, wisdom and compassion. You can understand if it only has one wing, it sort of flops around uselessly on the floor. It never takes off. If you really, really want to take wing, then you develop both sides developing this cultivation of mind beginning to understand the mind is extremely interesting even in Buddhist terms because the term chitta which is the word that's often used in Buddhist terminology for mind there's lots of other terms as well but this word chitta, it's a very simple word actually has connotations of the connectedness of heart and mind it has both elements within it many of my Tibetan teachers used to say to me "Mm, trouble with you westerners you're always thinking with this not with this you know, so it's actually beginning to understand the connectedness between them to be, out of this to begin to develop not an unemotional blank state but a state which is full of wholesome emotions about ourselves and others and that's what we'll start off with some exploration with tomorrow in the morning now I'll just leave it briefly open I'm sure you're all very tired um, just to see if there's any comments or questions or anything about this and then we'll pick it up in the morning and we'll finish off with a, a short sit this evening yes um, can you just give a bit of instruction for a lying down meditation please? well I'm going to give a sitting meditation but you can lie, do lie down doing it as well and I'll do that in a second when we're just going to go into the, into the short meditation that we're going to do Okay. Any any other comments or questions? Don't worry, by the end of the weekend I hope I'll get you to talk to me. <laughs> Despite what it says about talking outside the room. <laughs> okay, well, in that case that'll let us sit for about 25 minutes. Now, I just want to say a few words about this and you can carry this over into the early morning meditation because that's where we're you know, that's obviously where we're starting, and there won't be any instructions in that particular session, the one that starts at quarter to seven and goes through to breakfast. So, as you heard me say during the talk, the one object that we carry around with us continuously, and it's good to note it because you're still alive, is that you're breathing. <laughs> you know, worry if you're not. So the breath becomes the automatic focus of our attention. Because, as you, again, as you heard me say during the brief talk, th- this is with us everywhere. So you can do it at work, you can do it on the train, you can do it in the car for brief periods of time, and you can do it sitting on the cushion in a more formal situation. The first thing to realize about any form of sitting or even lying meditation you're doing is to examine your intention to look at your intention now the posture if you're sitting up in particular should be paid close attention to because in a way it embodies the intention to stay aware and to stay alert so you pay a little bit of attention to making sure that the spine is straight that there is no tension there and you have your hands placed in a comfortable position, either one hand on top of the other or hands just placed on the knees. It doesn't really matter. Some traditions do one, other traditions do the other. So you're looking closely at your intention as an embodied intention here. And even if you're lying down, you know, the intention to stay awake as opposed to going to sleep to trying to remain as alert as you can. So after you've examined your intention, seen that the body is literally embodying that intention, then we can take our awareness to the movement of the breath. Now in this particular meditation what I just want you to do is pay attention to the breath coming into the nose and then imagine it going all the way down to the navel. So you're kind of following it down and you feel the abdomen rise and as you breathe out you can imagine the breath coming all the way from the navel with the abdomen moving in and the breath exhaling through the nose. So you're following the breath in this way, inhaling all the way down to the navel with the abdomen moving out and exhaling not controlling the breath but just letting it rise and fall naturally but as you exhale then it rises moving up from the navel through the throat out through the nose And try to let your mind rest gently on that movement. So you're not forcing. Just watching this natural, spontaneous. Sometimes the breath might be short. Sometimes it might be long. And we'll talk about what that indicates tomorrow. But just this evening, just concentrate on this movement arising naturally, spontaneously placing your attention letting it rest gently on that movement for as long as you can without forcing, without straining just applying applying the right effort again to hold your attention there as long as possible but almost inevitably that the mind your attention will drift away or get caught up in something it might be an image it might be a thought it might be something about today about your journey, getting here, arriving here it might even be trepidation about the weekend what's going to happen tomorrow so the mind is looking at both the past and the future note the quality of whatever it is that's arising and whether you like it or whether you don't like it but not repressing it it's very very important not to repress what is arising that you take this little time out just to note it and perhaps say you know, to even use a word if it's an anxious thought anxiety And once you've done that, to lead the mind gently, very kindly, gently, gently back to the breathing and letting the awareness rest on that simple movement. Until it happens again. Try not, if you can help it, to get caught up with trains of thought. Not repressing, not grabbing hold of and being caught up with, but simply noting what is there, not ignoring simply noting what is there coming into some kind of friendly, kindly relationship thoughts are not your enemies there's also no magical hoover that's going to hoover them all away and that's not the intention anyway curious about them and the moment you're curious about them brings you into a different relationship with your thoughts or images or whatever it might be that's arising and only once you've gone through that process do you lead gently and kindly your attention back to the breath. Being aware of breathing in and breathing out all the way down to the navel with the movement of the abdomen and all the way out as well. And we'll just do this for this short meditation period. Thank you for listening.